Welcome to episode 13 of When Life Gives You Lemons, Go Vegan. This podcast celebrates and shares people's incredible stories of recovery after making the transition to a low-fat, whole-food, vegan lifestyle, and I am your host, Corinne Nidja. This episode is all about diet, lifestyle, and multiple sclerosis, which after my own diagnosis in 2004, is very close to my heart. So I hope you enjoy. Hello, so today we have... Rebecca Stonor, my first other MS recovery story, apart from my own, which I haven't actually shared on here, which I will. I will share my own story on the podcast. But she's here today to share her story on the podcast. She's from Adelaide. We met at the beautiful and wonderful Natalie and Stuart McIntosh's house a couple of weekends ago. So probably in, well, this was going to come out in January. So probably, you know, it was in October. And October? No, November, November. November. And we had this amazing feast at their house of beautiful, low-fat, whole-food, plant-based food cooked up by the chefs from the Gawler Foundation. We watched a documentary, Serving Love, which Natalie and Stuart made, and Dr. Clapper was there, and it was just a day I'll never forget. I just really loved that day. It filled my heart with to meet all these beautiful, like-minded people and professionals and spend a whole day really immersed in low-fat, whole-food, plant-based eating, which was just like Nirvana for me and everyone who was there, I think, would feel the same way. So Rebecca, I met her on that day and we then went to the Nutrition in Medicine Symposium the following day together in Melbourne, held by Raw Events and the wonderful Lucy Stegley, who runs Raw Events, and Michael Clapper and a lot of other people who spoke there at that that symposium, which was just a fantastic day overall. Now... We have Rebecca. She's going to share her story with us. And yeah, let's just go. Hey, Rebecca, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. Thanks for having me. So my story, just over two years ago, I was diagnosed with MS. Previous to that, I, I had two children. So after the first one, I remember going to the doctor just feeling like rubbish. And I put it down to sleep deprivation for a long time. But I just felt really fatigued and all sorts of really strange symptoms. I felt like I was drunk all the time, but not in a fun kind of happy way. Yeah, he did lots of blood tests, did the whole blood work up, and it showed that I had Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune thyroid condition. So I started taking medication for that. And a few years later, I had my second child. You know, again, I put it down to sleep deprivation, feeling pretty awful. And then... I started having vision problems. So my right eye, I lost a lot of contrast. Um, I couldn't see reds very well, particularly when I got very hot. If I was exercising, colour vision would go almost completely from that eye. So I think I probably lost maybe 50% of my vision, which was a bit disconcerting. I went to a GP who said any changes in your vision are really significant. So I went to the emergency department. They had no idea what it was and they referred me to a neurological ophthalmologist so she was going to see me in a few months time didn't think it was too important and I kind of started doing the Dr Google thing (laughs) Um, and there's this great website that diagnoses eye conditions so basically can you see this can you see that you know what's going on with your eyes and basically came to the conclusion that it was probably uh, one of the first symptoms of MS which was totally just the worst thought possible. I always thought of any condition to get MS is probably like the worst, you know, some sort of neurological condition that can't be treated and 
my idea of MS was an auntie by marriage, so not by blood, who I think she's still alive today. She can move one finger on one hand. That's about it. So I thought my prognosis was going to be that, basically ending up in a wheelchair and being in a nursing home fully dependent. So I eventually ended up having MRIs and having the diagnosis, which was pretty earth-shattering. But even before that doctor's visit, so my husband and I kind of diagnosed ourselves, the MRI confirmed it, showing I think I had six lesions in my brain and the optic nerve was quite damaged as well, which was what was causing optic neuritis for me. So even before that confirmation from the ophthalmologist, I changed my diet. I did research straight away and radically changed everything. So, but that was two, nearly two and a half years ago now. So I originally started on the Terry Walls protocol. Have you heard of that one? Yeah, but but, but fill everyone in. Okay, so it, it, her video on YouTube is really compelling and you know, it brought me to tears when I saw it because it actually gave me hope. I thought, wow, I, there are things that I can do. But one of the first things I asked the neurologist that I saw after the um, ophthalmologist was, is there anything I can do? Can I change my diet? Can I exercise? Is there anything I can do? And he just basically said, no, nothing's going to help you. You need to take these medications and just basically wait for things to progress. And I wasn't too happy with that. <laughs> I think I maybe have... Um, issues with authority but I thought no that's not good enough so yeah the the Terry Walls protocol was the first thing I found she basically went from a wheelchair really quite dependent lots of symptoms lots of pain to being able to ride a bike and walk and leading a fairly normal life and what I took from her protocol was that she completely changed her diet she dropped out gluten which is one thing we can talk about but also it's a really nutrient dense diet so giving up a lot of the processed foods a lot of uh nutrient poor foods like i don't know white fluffy bread or whatever and bringing in brightly colored fruits and vegetables and cramming them in like her protocol is i think nine cups of really densely colored fruits and vegetables during the day so you know that's massive when i when i eat that much my stomach is huge but (laughs) it just shows that the nutrient density really helps so i started on that but then the amount of fat that's in that diet kind of didn't really didn't really sit well with me. I'd heard a little bit about saturated fat in uh, MS and the role it plays in MS. So I started looking into that. Uh, I found Roy Swank's work, which he did, I think it was in the 1950s. He had a huge number of people with MS, basically put them on a very low saturated fat diet. Those that were on the low saturated fat diet did exceptionally well. Those on, you know, a standard diet did really, really poorly in terms of their disability and progression. So, And then I guess it evolved to OMS, which is Overcoming MS by George Jelinek, which was great. It incorporated that sort of diet aspect, but all the lifestyle aspects that have been shown to influence MS, like um, vitamin D, exercise, stress reduction, meditation, and the low-fat, saturated fat diet. He also included fish. So then, <laughs> this is me doing my research. Uh, the next stage was I looked into basically giving up fish. Like, why do I need this? The connection was starting to form with me. Mm, I've given up animal products because they're so high in saturated fat. Do I really need to eat fish? And I looked more into that and the problems with inflammation. And MS is all about inflammation in the body. So I gave up fish and it was great. I haven't looked back. So, yeah, and that's me today. 
So what are the differences that you noticed from two and a half years ago to, to now? Yeah, lots. So I've always been a little bit overweight. Um, as a kid, I was really chubby. And as a young adult, always really struggling with my weight. I'd always be on diets, you know, trying to restrict my calories, crazy exercise routines. Most people who knew me, because I'm quite tall, people would think that, you know, I wasn't carrying a lot of weight. But I, yeah, I was always a bit overweight. So I've been a constant weight for the last two and a half years. I've been in my ideal weight, which is something I never thought I'd get to. You know, in your mind, you're always thinking, and I know you probably think this too, that, oh, if I just get to, so for me, it was 65 kilos. If I just get to 65 kilos, I'm going to feel great. And I always thought that was the goal, but I was probably always around 70, um, maybe 71. After my second child, I got up to 80. So yeah, and then I, I started the five and two diet. So this was before I was diagnosed. So I thought I ate a really healthy diet. Did five and two diet after my second child, lost 20 kilos. Still had lots of meat, dairy, because, you know, body needs meat and dairy. We need calcium for strong bones and we need protein. But I always ate lean and I thought low fat was going low carb, you know, because we shouldn't have too many carbs in our diet because that's really fattening. But, yeah, I always struggled with my weight. And even with the 5 and 2 diet, my weight, my weight used to fluctuate quite a lot. So, yeah, definitely constant weight, which has been awesome. So I'm down to, like, 60, 61, and I've been at that for – so for me, my height, that's my ideal weight. Been at that for the whole time. But so my symptoms have gone. My optic neuritis has completely resolved. I mean, that could be the relapse-remitting nature of MS, but I'm really lucky that I wasn't left with any visual deficits. The other things, the other symptoms that I had when I was first diagnosed with MS were lots of sensory things. Like my fingers would feel really strange. I'd have troubles doing up buttons, um, walking my legs. I'd feel like I was walking on sort of dry sand, like really strange sensations through my legs and always worried, like always worried that at any minute something could happen, like I'd fall over. I didn't have really balance issues, but there was always this weird cognitive thing couldn't concentrate very well, couldn't hold a conversation. You know, I'd be in meetings and I'd be stumbling over my words and I'd, I'd just have to say to my workmates that, oh, you know, I've got a toddler and he doesn't sleep very well. So I'd be making excuses for it all the time. So, yeah, all the brain fog stuff's gone, which is awesome. Thyroid stuff, I think, has improved as well. But the thing about the thyroid is that once it's damaged, it's kind of damaged. I'll need to take medication for that for the rest of my life. It's definitely plateaued and it's not getting any worse. Lots of skin things have cleared up. Like my skin's cleared up. Uh, I used to have really itchy sort of dermatitis. That's completely gone. I don't know what component of my diet changed that, that sort of thing, but definitely noticed changes with um, dropping dairy and gluten. I, I also have a family history of autoimmune conditions. Mum and dad have both got different things, so there's a genetic component for sure for me. But I soon realised that a lot of your chances of developing autoimmune conditions are environmental. So, you know, the fact that I live in South Australia and, you know, you live in Melbourne too, so we're not getting huge amounts of sunlight is a huge factor as well. And our diet when we're growing up and perhaps even our parents' diet was something that influenced us. I mean, you know, I keep saying to my parents, if we knew what we knew now, what would we have done, <laughs> you know? How could we have lived, like, growing up without all these little ailments and health problems? It would be such – I would love – I'd just. i love to be able to see, like, two 
two lives, like one where I was raised whole food plant-based vegan and one where I was raised the way I was raised to see the difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they've done studies on twins. I don't know if they've compared them like that as in different diets, but, you know, identical twins, if one has MS, like so if they're identical genetically, you would expect the other one to have MS as well, but they don't. There's only like 25% chance that the other person will develop MS. So it shows you that something's different in the environment of that other person. So, yeah, it's huge. And the thing I think I find most frustrating is that there are so many women, and particularly women, it affects women more than men, so many women out there who won't make any changes at all, even if it was a small change. And, I mean, Roy Swank's research was, what, less than 20 grams of saturated fat a day, and they did exceptionally well. So 95% of those people on that diet lived to a ripe old age and didn't have any disability and, you know, it was massive, right? That's that's still a huge amount of saturated fat. I aim for less than 10 grams a day and they still won't make any changes and it drives me nuts. Like, is the power of food really that great that they're still going to have their cheese and chocolate every day and pig out on deep fried food? I mean, I think it is. I think there's that... um, what is it, like a, an addiction? It is an addiction. I was re- listening to a podcast yesterday or a video. Actually, I think it was That Vegan Couple, their podcast, and they said that, like, I don't know what the study was or whether they got this information I from, but they said that it's actually easier to change someone's religion than their diet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A diet is like a religion. It's, it's, it is, it's just such a deeply held conditioning from birth, I think, that we just find it so hard to shake. Yeah, we've been told for how long that this is the way we need to eat. This is the best way to eat in the Western world. And, I mean, our diet, our diet, Western diet is causing Western diseases. You know, the whole China study showed that in areas of China where they ate lots and lots of fruits and veggies, they did exceptionally well. I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll get other things like infections because they won't have the medicine that we have, but they're not dying of heart disease and diabetes. And there's no MS in a lot of those countries, the poorer countries. They're increasing more and more as they adapt to our, adopt our Western ways of eating, unfortunately. It's so sad when you go there and you see all these McDonald's and these things and you're like, no, don't. Like, you were right. We were wrong. Don't listen to us. We're idiots. Even the Okinawans in, what is it, southern Japan who have the highest number of centenarians, they're starting to adopt a Western lifestyle and they're starting to develop heart disease and dying earlier. Yeah, it's nuts. So we're all going to hopefully, like I can see this slight change happening and I can't help it now. Like you were talking about religion. I do feel sometimes I can get a little bit fanatical and I try and tone it down. I just give people the information they want to hear and um, I did mention in a meeting at work recently that you know, bacon is considered a group one carcinogen and it's, you know, equivalent to asbestos and what is it, passive smoking or something. And they were horrified. Nobody at the table knew that processed meats were considered carcinogenic. And they were just saying to me, Rebecca, you ruined my life. And I'm like, well, I'm sorry, but once you know, you can't unknow. Yeah, you can't. You can't. When did you start to notice the first benefits? Like when did you start to feel differently? How su- How quickly did it start to improve your health? Uh, I think changes like skin and just having more energy, losing that fatigue 
quite quickly. That was quite quick. And even when I was sort of, you know, sort of dabbling in the walls protocol for maybe the first couple of months, and then I went into more of the plant-based um, sort of OMS. Oh, the other thing I did was I went to the um, Overcoming MS retreat at the Gawler Foundation. You've been to one of those, haven't you? Yeah, I have. Massively life-changing, and I totally recommend it to anyone if you can afford it. If not, like, scrape up the money because it, I had a lot of scepticism. So I come from a scientific background. I've studied science and I've worked in science, and so I've got the ability to research, but I was still very sceptical. So I went along to that and I completely convinced that was on the right path. Yeah, so in terms of how quickly, definitely probably, I reckon the first six months, I noticed huge changes. The optic neuritis started to resolve. Yeah, I was feeling much better. Um, but I, so I've been, what, nearly two and a half years now. I think it's probably the last six months that I've felt the best in terms of symptom. Like I'll have weeks and weeks with no symptoms. If I go through a very stressful event, I'll get some tingliness. It's really strange. I'll, the tip of my nose will get really tingly. And it's kind of like my barometer. Like it kind of says to me, Ricky, you need to slow down. You need to chill out. Just take some time for yourself because it's it's still there. It's in the background. George Jelinek, who developed the OMS program, he says it can take up to three years for the diet and lifestyle program to really be effective. He's been on it for 17 years now, and I think he considers himself recovered, no longer has any symptoms, not on any medication, and probably won't, you know, have any other symptoms for the rest of his life. So the fact that people can recover just gave me huge amounts of hope, huge amounts. So, yeah, probably the last six months, maybe a bit more, I felt pretty good. And probably, you know, you've probably got the same friends around the same age with kids and everything. Life's really busy they probably don't feel as well as we do and they're not diagnosed with anything. I know quite a lot of people who are, um, I know um, Malcolm Mackay, so he's a, a GP in Melbourne. I saw a talk on the, from him recently, he came to Adelaide, which was really nice. He talks about this tipping point where you go through your life, you're eating really crap food, you're not exercising enough, you, you know, all these things that you know you should be doing. And there's this tipping point where, your body gets to the point where it's just had enough and it just tips over the edge and you develop something like autoimmune condition or heart disease or diabetes or something like that. And I really think I got to that point um, after having kids, you know, it's a huge <laughs> tax on your body and you don't have the same time to look after yourself. And if you do, you feel, you know, get that mother guilt, <laughs> you feel completely selfish for trying to look after yourself. So, yeah, I think for me that was my tipping point. Yeah, and I see other friends of mine kind of just at that point and I, I'm trying to say to them, maybe you should look into your diet and lifestyle and maybe before you get to a diagnosis like I had, which was completely earth-shattering and it was just horrible and I, don't, I think if you've never had a diagnosis like that, you can't comprehend what it's like. You know, you remember that moment, you're in the neurologist's office and they say to you, it looks like my, my I remember precisely my... Um, the woman said to me, it looks like you have MS. And it was just, yeah, heart-wrenching, completely awful. So, yeah, I'm trying to prevent that in other people. And I can see it. I can see them struggling with fatigue or, I don't know, mental health issues or whatever. And I think just make some changes. That's where the fanatic comes in. <laughs> into play and you know what it's like you're trying to say to people hey maybe you should just give up meat and dairy and they think you're a complete freak I know that happens to me too definitely the fanatic part 
because you just care so because we we know how bad things were for us yeah and how freaking amazing they are now so you're just like oh gosh you could just do this too i really care about you why don't you do this too and they're just just like (laughs) put their fingers in there isn't that want to hear it and because you love someone, you just want the best for them. So I guess it comes from a good place, but yeah. people need to be ready for it, unfortunately, before they can, you know, take it on board. And family too, you know. I'd really love family to do better. They won't, you know. I'm, I'm the outcast. I'm the, the black sheep in the family. Oh, you can't eat this. What are you going to eat at Christmas? Oh, you just you can't eat anything. I'm like, have you seen what I eat? So I, I presented at the um, Dr. Clapper Nutrition and Healthcare Symposium, that's what it's called, um, organised by Lucy. And, yeah, I presented my story there and basically I had some photographs up of the food that I eat just to say, you know, we do eat amazing food and the volumes of what I get to eat is huge because it's nutrient-dense, it's lower calorie. So, you know, I pile my plate on my bowl so high every meal. I go to work and I take my whatever pile of vegetables and it's huge and I see these other women who are trying to lose weight and they have these tiny portions of sadness yeah awful sort of food um tiny portions so they're trying to reduce the size but still probably more calories than I'm taking in and yeah I'm the the odd one out I know it can be really really difficult so what were the struggles part you know you're mentioning some now what were the struggles you found transitioning to this lifestyle if they social be it cravings be it convenience financial what, what are the things that you found the hardest i would say cravings was not a problem um something and i know that uh being diagnosed with something like this is a massive motivational thing where you you know i gave up chocolate and i have not had one piece of chocolate since I, I had a slice of cake recently that had some chocolate chips in it. I picked the chocolate chips out because I'm like, you know, I just can't do it. It's just too high in fat. So cravings stopped. And I, I also really believe that it's a part of the whole microbiome thing that once they evolved, the little bugs in my gut, they evolved. I crave kale now and I crave green things. If I haven't had a big plate of something green that day, I'm like, oh, just give me a kale salad for dinner. So it's really weird and people often ask me, like, do I miss anything? And, like, you know, I don't. I think I'm so satisfied when I'm eating I don't have any cravings. But definitely social. So friendship groups have changed. Um, So my my family, my children, two kids and my husband also eat the same way I do. Definitely at home. If they're out and they have something else, that's fine. But at home we're completely plant-based. But, you know, inviting people over for a coffee now, I'm not going to go out and buy milk. I can't go out and buy dairy milk. I'll offer them soy, almond, cashew, whatever, even I can make it myself. But I can't justify going out and buying milk. So that's that's changed things a little bit. Uh, I also had a close friend, a husband of a close friend, I hope they don't listen, sort of suggest that I had orthorexia nervosa, which is the eating disorder. You've probably heard of it. I've, I've, I, lots of people think I have that too. <laughs> I'm not the the only one then. Okay, which, you know, I kind of took to offence because here I am doing the best for me and my family. And it's based on scientific research. Like I'm not doing it 
you know, not like dancing naked under a full moon thinking that's going to help, although it might be nice. <laughs> you know, it's, 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 it's evidence-based. So, but I, I've, I've slowly come to the realisation that it's not me, it's them. And if people don't like what I'm doing, it's perhaps they're doubting their own diet and lifestyle and think that they could do better. So, yeah, it's definitely changed friendship groups. Family, if they thought I was underweight, I think they've gotten used to the weight I'm at now. But, you know, there was always this mentality that you've got to have a few extra kilos on you to be healthy. You know, what happens if we get sick? Well, we're not in that. We're not in a third world country where we're going to die of dysentery or something. We don't need to carry those extra kilos. I think that's really antiquated thought. So, yeah, there's definitely been issues. And also, like, from healthcare professionals. I've got a really great team now. I see a GP who's very supportive of OMS. I see a functional medicine doctor who is extremely supportive. The new neurologist that I'm seeing is public. I don't have to pay anything, which is great. But at the same time, they don't really support any nutritional changes either. So it's really hard. All of them have basically yeah just just assume that i will continue to progress like everybody else does but i'm hoping to prove them wrong great i i just wanted to interrupt because i just realized that i just assume that everyone knows what ms is because i've been living with it for 14 years and it's just my world but if you want to just explain a little bit just a brief snippet of what the diagnosis means for most people and what they think that ms is Okay, so you might have to, like, help me out here because it's pretty complex and, like, the the causes seems to be very multifactorial. Like, there's a lot of things that happen. But it's basically your body's own immune system attacking the myelin sheath around your nerves of your central nervous system so they don't function as well. And it can attack it in different areas. Like, so for me, it was definitely my optic nerve because your eyes are basically an extension of your central nervous system attack different areas of my brain that maybe affected speech and, I don't know, different things. Didn't attack my uh, spinal cord, which is great. Some people have um, lesions on their spinal cord. Yeah, there's been a lot of research to find out why it happens, um, why it happens in some individuals rather than others. I think that there are definite people in the population who are more susceptible to it than others. Like Obviously, not everybody's going to develop MS. But there are a lot of lifestyle factors that may not cause, but they're correlated with it. So, yeah, that's my understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same. So your central nervous system is your brain and your spinal cord from what I... Yeah. Aware of. So, yeah. Yeah, so people just don't understand what the central nervous system contains. It contains your brain and your spinal cord. So the, my, the MS is when you're... They, they, they think, and that's what the science is saying now, is what they think that your immune system is basically attacking... The, the myelin sheath around your your nerves contained in your central nervous system. I kind of think of it like if someone was punching you in the arms, imagine your immune system is like a fist that's punching your myelin sheath. It doesn't. It might not do anything for a while, but if, it, you know, if you punch someone hard enough or if you keep punching repeatedly, that bruising and that damage eventually goes through and it affects the nerve. Like if you punch it in the arm, it affects you. You know, eventually you'd cause some serious damage to your arm if you repeatedly punch someone. That's what I kind of imagine. Like it's it's like something that's bruising, and at the start you might not notice it. You might just feel a little bit not quite right. But after a while, or if it's a significant stressor, 
Um, for me, I had a huge stress incident before most of my major relapses and I woke up numb from the waist down. But I mean, it might not be a gradual thing. It might be like that where I had a huge stress and my brain was just like, like a foghorn. <laughs> this is too much for you. I've got a friend with MS. Um, so I catch up with a group of women in Adelaide who will follow the OMS program. We catch up once a month, which is great. So I've met a woman through that who um, basically her first symptom was she couldn't get out of bed. She couldn't move her legs. And so she was, you know, mother of, I think, three, doing quite well. I don't know if she had symptoms before that, but that was basically the first thing that happened to her. So She's got mobility back now, but she, you know, uses a wheelchair when she needs to or she walks with a frame or sticks. And so I think she was diagnosed with secondary progressive. So relapse remitting um, MS is the most common form, which is basically you have a relapse, then you recover from that probably to the baseline that you were before and then you have another one and they just continue at whatever intervals happen for you. So for me, I think it was definitely annually. I was, you know, having really struggling in like July, August, which is apparently like the busiest time for being diagnosed with MS because you're coming out of winter, your vitamin D levels are really low, probably been in lots of fatty foods, whatever. So, yeah, a lot of people get diagnosed in after winter or during winter. So then there's also secondary progressive. So relapse remitting, if if you go untreated or don't make any changes, we'll basically then go to secondary progressive, which is where the damage that happens in your brain doesn't go away and so you're left with deficits. So it might be mobility or vision or speech or whatever. You'll be left with that deficit and it won't heal. So if you can start treatment early, so if you're just first diagnosed, if you start treatment early, it you have a better outcome long-term. That's my understanding. I met some women at the OMS retreat who were diagnosed, I don't know, 10, 15 years beforehand, thought, you know, I'm going to be okay, this isn't going to affect me, didn't go on any medication or um, dietary interventions and progressed. And they were probably in their early 50s. And to me, they looked the most scared out of anybody there. They were petrified that it was going to take their life away. So I think, yeah, definitely going to the retreat gave them hope. So, yeah, my idea is that you will, if you do nothing, if you continue on your path, it'll progress to the point where you can't function anymore. And who wants that? Not me. No. (laughs) Not me. I think a lot of, yeah, yeah, it just depends. Like for me, I was really keen to find out more about diet when I was diagnosed, but I didn't have any idea. I just got a leaflet about the Swank diet in the mail from the MS, from the MS Australia. Okay. Which was Amazing. But it had all of the medications in the envelope as well. But it just had this little tiny A4, like might have been two page A4. Yeah. And I read it and I was like, this sounds so much more reasonable and makes so much more sense to me than anything else. And so then I just but I but I wasn't like you. I did take four years of stuffing around because my neurologist kept saying, There's no science, eat whatever you want. And I'd go back and forth and back and forth, thinking, I'll do the diet, but then thinking, Well, I'll go to him and he'd say, Don't worry about it. And I was like, Well, I do love cake, so I'll <laughs> just keep eating cake. I'll just keep eating cake. And then it wasn't until I went numb from the waist down that I was like, No, nah, I'm gonna commit because I feel the best when I do commit and I feel the worst when I don't. So that's enough evidence for me. Yeah, but at least you only took four years. I think that, you know, that's still early days and you're probably younger than I was. I was 
40 when I was diagnosed. So I was 24. Yeah, okay. So you were younger, you had a little bit more time. But at least, you know, you came to it. and It's true. I think it's hard. In your 20s, you're still so trapped in this wanting to be liked. Yeah. Wanting to be part of a your social group. You're wanting to be to fit in and to be normal, in inverted commas. Um, I think for me, a lot of what held me back was that I felt like I would be, like you said about the social stuff, I felt like I would be outcast a social pariah yeah yeah i don't care about that now i like i yeah, now i couldn't give a <laughs> shit but at the time i was like who's gonna talk to me now i'm not smoking i don't eat anything what are we gonna do when we hang out yeah don't eat anything oh my god um yeah i hear you but also what you were saying about um you know listening to the medical professionals when you feel so vulnerable when you you know, you're at the rock bottom, like this is the worst thing that's ever happened in your life. Mm. You trust these people. They know. They're specialists in these areas. You know, if, if somebody says to you, there's nothing you can do. And I even asked it when I was diagnosed with thyroiditis. I said, is there anything I can do? Is there any dietary change? And the endocrinologist who I saw said, no, nothing you can do at all. We'll just monitor your levels of thyroid hormones in your blood and we'll adjust your medication as it progresses to the point where basically my thyroid wouldn't be working anymore and I have to be fully supplemented for it, which is kind of easy. You need a little bit of a balance of the different thyroid hormones. But, yeah, I, I trusted these medical professionals and even the one with, who diagnosed me with MS. I thought, okay, he knows what he's talking about. So the other thing that happened was I had a MS nurse come to my house when I was first diagnosed from, I don't know, the South Australian branch of MS society. She was lovely. She gave me all the information. She was the one who, like you said, you got an A4 pamphlet. She just mentioned a couple of words. She said, it has, there's some evidence to show that people on a low saturated fat diet do well. And I, and I didn't think much of it at the time because you know, I was just swimming in all this information. Yeah, yeah. And she came with all the leaflets too of you can have these injectables you know, they might reduce 30% of relapses. You can have these tablets, they might reduce 40 to 60% of relapses. And then you can have this thing that's like a um, an infusion that you have, I don't know, over several days um, and then uh, two years apart, you have two doses of this and it basically resets your immune system. So it's almost like chemotherapy, really heavy duty stuff. And that'll basically stop your MS, but that's a last resort. It doesn't stop in everyone. So, you know, I got put on this medication that made half my hair fall out. And it was horrible stomach upset. It was just revolting. Um, I then changed to a different medication after that, which sort of settled it down. I, I wasn't happy with the fact, even 70% of relapses, like if they, if they reduce 70% of relapses, that means I'd still be having one like every two or three years. And what happens if the next one I had just happened to affect a part of my brain where my left leg didn't work anymore? And how would I get around the house? And how would I look after my children? You know, it wasn't enough to take this medication and think that that was going to be okay. I mean, I've got friends who don't follow MS, uh, OMS, that just take the medication. They eat shitloads of cheese and chocolate because they just can't give it up. They're so addicted to it. And they're still progressing. So when, when I was first diagnosed, I went onto Facebook like you do, joined all these different groups. Um, there's an Adelaide-based page. Um, and the, actually there were two sort of groups, ones that were following OMS, ones who weren't. And it was around Christmas time I found them and, ones who were going to um, restaurants and having like huge schnitzels with chips and gravy 
looked delicious. And the, the centre of the table was full of like those favourites chocolates and they were all really overweight and they were all talking about what sort of walking aid they were going to use or what catheter was the best brand or whatever, right? And and then I saw this other group who were following OMS who were all slim, most of them, and doing really well. And the woman who runs that group, she's in her early 60s. She was diagnosed, I don't know, 17 years ago or maybe more, um, following OMS the whole time, hasn't had any relapses during that time, runs, still running in her early 60s, super fit, like fitter than me. She's got, you know, biceps bigger than mine and <laughs> she's doing amazingly well. And I'm like comparing these two groups, who do I really want to associate myself with? And I just, yeah, had to go with the OMS group. So Exactly. The other, uh, look, if you have MS and you're in those groups, I I never I, I avoided those groups for like the plague for about 14 years. And this year I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go in them and every now and again just comment and talk and share my stories in case anyone in there is listening. But those groups typically, they are so depressing. Oh, yeah. I find them yeah. so disempowering, so depressing. Everyone's talking about and and. and and just going with the flow of watching themselves decline and just constantly posting just miserable a miserable miserable post, whereas the OMS and those groups that are following a whole food plant based diet with multiple sclerosis are thriving and doing so well. And if you are in those groups and are like miserable, just get out of them and go into an OMS group and just see the difference and just try it. Even if you're like terrified of adopting this diet. The mindset, even just having those stories in your head for two years rather than these other ones that are just about fear and misery, even if, even if you just feel a little bit less trapped in this cycle of despair and you don't even make changes to your diet, it'll just feel better not to be surrounded by more and more just daily bombarded with stories of how bad this disease is and how terrifying it is because it is terrifying. It is terrifying. I was terrified. Rebecca here was terrified. Like, you know, there's no denying that. No. But a whole food plant-based diet and this, 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 if you do the research and you look into it and you surround yourself with people who are like-minded and who are doing it, it's a place to feel empowered, to feel stronger, to feel hopeful, which is so much better for your soul to feel that than to feel disempowered, terrified and hopeless for your future. The other thing I just thought of when you were saying that was if anybody does want to look into OMS, they can get a free book. George allows his book to be distributed to those who've been diagnosed free of charge and also the Recovering from MS book, which has got, I think, 12 stories of people who had really a, a lot worse um, symptoms than I had and they basically recovered once they changed their diet and lifestyle. So it's really, yeah, like you said, empowering. So I think if you contact the Gawler Foundation, they would have resources available um but another point i wanted to make too is that ms is different for everyone so there'll be people who are diagnosed with ms don't change their diet and they have no progression but they're the minority um so you'll get some of those in those groups who are you know quite sad and depressing and they're, they're, they're still fine um and you'll also get people who do everything so the whole oms approach is 
You do whatever it takes. You don't rule out medication. Do do it all. Put all your eggs, you know, don't just put all your eggs in the basket. You know, if you want to have medication and the diet, if you want to, and meditation and vitamin D, do the whole, do the whole gamut. Program. Don't say, oh, you know, I'm going to get rid of my medication overnight. Just do what, do the whole thing. And the scary thing about a lot of the MS medication is that there's a rebound effect. So if you go off it, you can have a flush of um, white blood cells going through your body and basically starting to attack your central nervous system again and you can relapse quite severely. So um, I wouldn't recommend doing that. So, yeah, the OMS approach is to do everything it takes, which I'm definitely totally um, on board with. So not to go off medication suddenly is what you're saying, definitely. Yeah, And speak to your neurologist. And speak to all those people. They wouldn't support it anyway. There are people, like I follow the OMS forum and there's an OMS Facebook page. I'm on both of those. And there are people who do everything it takes and they still progress. They still have relapses. But in the long run, I really think that the majority of people who are following the OMS program will do better. Whether or not they still progress and they might progress in disability a little bit, they're not going to die of MS, which is what in Swank's group, he had those who were having quite a, you know, standard diet with saturated fat. I think it was 80% of them, 80% of them were dead by the end of the trial and 50% of that 80% had died of MS. So, you know, it's kind of like we don't think that's going to happen these days. I mean, I, I don't know, I didn't ever think I was going to die of it. But, yeah, so I think it's it's definitely different for everyone. I don't, I don't think that following the OMS diet is definitely the best or, you know, plant-based, whatever you want to do, but cutting out saturated fat. I agree. And I think I, I just want to amplify what you've just said by saying people often say you know like there are there you will find people who it hasn't made who you know they're they're the minority but it hasn't they've done it and they're doing it and it's not making that much difference they are the minority but I bet if you ask them like other areas where they're feeling a bit better and most of them would say that there's it it has impacted on them like like their digestion their gut health their constipation their weight loss it will have impacted on something else positive. And for me, I always say, if I only got energy and I still had relapses, it would have been worth it. If I only stopped being constipated, it oh. would have been worth <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You know, if I only, you know, lost weight, it would have been worth it. Yeah. Um, you might, it, you know, like worst case scenario, you're still going to feel a bit better, which yeah. when you're already dealing with a chronic autoimmune disease is better than nothing. Yeah, I would I would 100% do it even if I was still having relapses. Yeah. And I think that it also puts your body in the best position to cause to heal. relapses. Yeah, yeah, and potentially heal from those. So um, I think it's really important. And the exercise as well. So um, George uh, has done a follow-up study since he's published his books. So he's got a, a, a newer version I think came out last year. And it's called the Holism Study. So he surveyed, I don't know, 3,000 people. Uh, who have been following the program and he found that, I don't know, there were different outcomes. I'd have to look into it a bit more, but mental health was a huge one. So, you know, there's there's quite a lot of depression in people with MS. I guess it's the lack of hope, um, but also it can affect the brain in that way. You can get quite depressing, you can get quite angry. I know the auntie that I have with MS, she got really angry and bitter and wasn't a nice person to be around. And I think it's probably a combining factor of those two things. But definitely diet, lifestyle, exercise, 
stress reduction, that's got to help with your mental health as well. I was I, I was depressed from probably about probably in my teens, but I wasn't medicated until I was eighteen and went and got medication. Off and on until until I really started embracing this way of eating, and I haven't touched wood. Had I'm not saying that whole food plant based diet is the cure for people's depression because it, it it has helped me, but I mean it's a multifaceted. There's a huge sure. It's it's a huge topic and subject and condition and I know um, for people. But for me, it definitely helped. I felt in control. I felt more hopeful. I felt more positive about my future. Um, and that that really that really helped. Yeah. But I mean, if it was a condition, if it was a really chemical issue. Then and I did take medication until I didn't feel like I needed it anymore. So don't go off your medication and go on a whole food plant based diet. No. Take your medication and just wean off slowly if you feel like you can and you're ready to. Just take your time and listen to your body. I have to say too that I um, follow Dr. Greger's website quite closely, nutritionfacts.org, um, and he's a legend and he he has quite a few. He does uh, YouTube clips on depression and a plant-based diet and one of them I watched suggested that you can actually induce depression by putting people on an inflammatory diet, which is, you know, lots of meat and dairy and uh, Western food, um, and you can actually induce it. So you can reduce it by being plant-based. So. Um, the other thing, I you know, that's great. Yeah, the other thing that about uh, I always get asked about meat. If it's just a saturated fat, why can't we eat lean fish or lean chicken breast? Even though chicken breast still has heaps of fat in it. Or somebody suggested recently that there was pork that was bred to have less fat in it. But it's not just about the fat; it's about the inflammation. So you eat animal tissue and consume that and it causes within hours it causes inflammation in your own body and it's that constant like you were saying hitting yourself with this inflammation over and over again three times a day or more you know consuming dairy and we consider that inflammatory as well doing it that many times something's got to give eventually on that point in the nutrition in medicine symposium talk dr clapper did when he talks about your blood and that you know if we eat if we only ate three meals a day which no one does we're all snacking in between and after dinner like everyone's eating probably six minimum snacks and meals combined a day each meal your body has to you get that inflammation you eat that meat you eat that saturated fat you eat that donut it takes like five hours to recover from that the shock to this to your system to your body and then you don't even give it five hours because you have a snack at 10 o'clock and then you have it at 10 a.m and then at 3 p.m and then you have it at 8 p.m yeah. so you your body only gets that time when you're asleep really to fast and to heal from all the damage that we've done to it all day yeah you know if we're eating it once every now and again but we're not we are literally injuring ourselves you know, multiple, multiple times a day and then wondering why you don't feel very good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I hear you. So, yeah, if people ask me about animal products, that's definitely the the, the thing. And, and dairy as well. I mean, dairy is horrific. I love Dr. Clapper's, you know, if you haven't watched What the Health, and I'm sure you have, Corinne, you've got to watch it because I love his little speech about dairy and how it's, you know, it's meant for this little calf to grow into this massive cow and he goes into how it's all full of um, hormones and all sorts of things to build a 
baby cow um and we really don't need that in our bodies that's why men are getting man boobs and yeah everyone's so terrified of the so- the humble soybean and you're like a soybean the hormones in a soybean where the hormones pumped into a cow to be pregnant constantly to to grow into this huge thing like the breast the maternal hormones breast, all of that stuff is just and they, they're definitely the, the the hormones in um so much more damaging yeah they, they mimic our hormones they're mammalian estrogens so you know they're milking pregnant cows so the amount of hormones in milk is just horrendous and so when you compare that to there might be a few phytoestrogens and whether or not they're compatible with our bodies i don't know it's still sort of quite controversial but they are much less like our mammalian hormones. So, you know, having a bit of soy milk is not going to kill us. I, I just think that, you know, billions of people across Asia have been thriving on soy before the introduction of dairy milk yeah, yeah. alternatives came in. They were, they, there was no – all of Asia should be walking around with man boobs yeah. and thyroid cancers and breast cancers if soy was as bad as what has been made out to be in our media. The other thing about dairy for people with MS is um, that it promotes sort of molecular mimicry in your blood. So there's a there's a protein in dairy that resembles the myelin, which is what our immune systems are attacking. So you're you're introducing this. This is my understanding anyway. Introducing this protein to your bloodstream, it's recognizing it. It's sending out white blood cells to attack it, and it starts you know attacking your own. So if anything, <laughs> yeah, dairy is probably one of the worst things. For us. Mm. Okay, I have to move on because you and I could talk all day. Oh, yeah, I right. I just, <laughs> it's so good. Like I'm just like, oh my god, someone I can talk to about yeah. MS specific because all of the talks have been about areas I'm not, I'm not familiar with, like heart disease or diabetes or whatever. Which has been amazing to hear how plant based diet can help them. But yeah. talking to someone with MS who's been in a very similar situation is really understand. I'm really enjoying it. Um, We'll be BFFs for life now anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> um, but I wanted to just say, because people will hear this and might listen to this and they'll be like, yeah, 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 that's all well and good, but I'm hooked on all this food. You know, I love meat. I love dairy. I love all this stuff. I don't believe I have the willpower to do this. I don't believe my family will embrace it. I don't believe in myself, in my life, that I can do this. What are your three biggest tips to help people who are listening Consider this and just start moving forward on adopting a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet. Definitely take it slowly. Like, I mean, you don't have to be like me. I'm, you know, a bit extreme and I just dropped everything overnight, cleared cleared out the cupboards and said, no way. And, and I got to the point too where I said to my husband and my children, I can't buy this stuff anymore. Once I realised how damaging it was for me, potentially my children too who had the genetic disposition I just said, no, I'm not buying it. I'll bring it into my house. So take it slowly. Like if you if you feel like you can't give up dairy straight away, just reduce it and then you'll get to the point. And just bring in the substitutes. Just start using a little bit of soy or almond milk. Or Almond milk is so easy to make and it's so much better than the shop-bought stuff. I don't know if you've ever made it, but it's so much creamier. And, you know, it's just, it's just beautiful. So definitely take it slowly. Have you tried macadamia, making your own macadamia milk? I know that's crazy expensive. I made it once just for a recipe for my blog. Yeah, yeah. Delicious. I just had some on hand and I thought may as well. Oh my <laughs> God. Yeah. It is, it's just, I, I don't normally drink plant-based milk just out of a glass cold. Yeah. I just normally put it in stuff, smoothies or in tea or in whatever. But I drank it 
in a glass. Just made the same recipe as every other almond nut milk, but with macadamias, like soaked them and then blended them. Um, and it was like a beautiful milkshake. Like I had, you know, I put a little bit of vanilla in and a couple of two dates and it was just, woo! You don't need that many nuts. I mean, a thing, you know, nuts obviously have a high level of fat and quite a lot of saturated fat, but um, you don't need a lot to make a really nice milk. Um, it be quite creamy. I love cashew milk. I've made that a few times. That's got, you know, a bit more saturated fat, but it's so creamy. And I think if I'm going to substitute something for family members who are coming over, cashew milk would be awesome in a coffee or something. And they, I don't think they'd notice the difference. I keep meaning to just like slip it in their coffee and they wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely go slow. I would say also do your own research. Don't listen to your medical professionals. I mean, listen to them. They know what they're yes. talking about. They've read the studies. They know what the medication can do for you. But do your own research as well. The the other thing that also happens when you give up meat and dairy is you tend to, well, some people lose that disconnect of, okay, this is actually an animal that I'm eating and this is going to sound really naff, but um, we have a couple of guinea pigs in our house and they're cute, they're called bub- Bubble and Squeak, and they squeak their heads off like like if, if they're running out of water, if they've got a, they, they're a bit hungry or they don't like the food they've got, they'd rather a bit of capsicum, they scream at me. I'll walk out the door and they'll just go off their head. And they're, they're like, they're these animals. They're, you know, 10 centimetres long and fluffy and you'd think that they have no brain. They know who I am. They don't scream at anybody else in the house. I'm basically their mum. And they tell me that they want something. Or if, if I look in the cage and they've got plenty of straw, it's all clean and they've got water and they're still squeaking at me, they just want a little bit of attention. They want to chat. And <laughs> I, I looked at them one day. This was sort of soon after I gave up meat and I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> these animals are talking to me, like obviously not with words, but... With their words. Yeah, yeah, with their words. And we kind of had this report and you, you have it, you know, you, you've got a dog there. You can have, make eye contact with that animal and you know if they're happy, if they're sad, if they're hungry or whatever. So kind of realising that animals were animals and I used to eat them, you know, I kind of lost that disconnect and it was really good. So I would say if you can, if it's motivating, watch some of the movies, watch What the Health. It's just, yeah, it's just amazing. Then watch things like Forks Over Knives, which is even more convincing. You don't have to watch the movies. You know, I know everybody talks about earthlings. You don't have to watch it if seeing animals being slaughtered is horrific for you because it is for everyone. And if it is, then why are you still eating them? You know, I don't get that. So that can be a motivational factor too. And I I guess for me, like, family members don't always get on board. I was cooking three separate meals a night, basically, for probably the first 18 months. Kids didn't like it. Husband didn't like it. He still wanted some meat because he thought we really needed it, thought the kids needed meat and dairy. I just kept dropping little bits of information, and, and we've all progressed. You know, my husband's completely on board now. So I would say if the family members are not really supportive, Even if you're just doing it for yourself, I think it's still worth taking the time to prepare your own food rather than eating what they eat because it's easier. So, yeah, I don't know if that's three tips, but (laughs) that's a few. That's great. Thank you so much. That is perfect. I think we covered a lot. I think I'm hoping that people can get a lot out of what you've had to say today. Sorry, I I don't normally interrupt this much, but I just got so – I get so excited to add, you know, like just to – yeah. Anyway, it was amazing. Thank you so much. That's all right. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Rebecca, for taking the time to share your MS journey with us. 
for the podcast and for anyone who's listening who has MS or who knows someone with MS, I really hope that you will share this podcast and subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it and do all the things so that more and more people with MS can hear these stories and find some hope, which is what we all need, which is what I needed and what Rebecca needed. And it's been so wonderful for us. So I hope that more and more people start hearing about the possibility of a low-fat, whole-food, plant-based diet, helping people to overcome and take control of their health. Next week's guest will be talking about my favourite topic, the microbiome. I will completely nerd out about this. I love it so much. I will be talking with the gut engineer herself, Fremantle-based holistic nutritionist and naturopath, as well as radio host Natalie Woodman. This interview was so much fun to do and so interesting and fascinating to me. And I hope that it will be super fascinating to you too, because 70% of our immune system is said, maybe even more, is said to reside within our guts. And Natalie Woodman is an expert on this. So it's not to be missed. Take care. See you next week. Bye.